Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, pedophiles, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I received mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I am giving you these instructions, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your word. And as we reflect upon it this morning, we ask that your spirit would be with us to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. This week, we're beginning a short trip into the letter of 1 Timothy. This letter is part of a group of letters that are together called the pastoral epistles. This group is made up of 1st and 2nd Timothy and the letter to Titus. And they're called the pastoral epistles because they purport to be letters written by Paul to some of his younger colleagues who are themselves pastors. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about the veracity of this claim and how it should affect our reading of these letters. For today, the main thrust of our reading has to do with the proper instruction in the law, particularly the legitimate use of the law. The author of the letter is concerned that the dangers of straying from the law will lead to ruin, as it has for other members of the community. He compares it to being shipwrecked in the faith. And we can understand why this metaphor makes sense. As we navigate the uncertain waters of faith, there are many obstacles that would disrupt or bring to an end our journey. 
I will admit to you now that much of this sermon will rely on the work of John Wesley. In a pair of sermons titled, The Law Established Through Faith, Discourse 1 and Discourse 2, John eloquently unpacks the illegitimate uses of the law as opposed to the legitimate use of the law. So let us begin where John begins and ask, what are the illegitimate uses of the law? Or how might the law become a stony outcrop that threatens to sink us on our faith journeys? The first misuse of the law, argues John, is to not preach it at all. He writes, Now the way for a preacher to make it all void at a stroke is to not preach it at all. This is just the same thing as to blot it out of the oracles of God. More especially when it is done with design, when it is made a rule not to preach the law, and the very phrase a preacher of the law is used as a term of reproach, as though it meant little less than an enemy of the gospel. So there are a few aspects to this misuse. First is the watering down of the gospel so that the law is completely removed. In other words, no demands are placed upon the faithful, no straight and narrow way is laid out for believers. The law and justice simply remain neglected. The other aspect is then to malign those who do preach the law, to label them modern-day Pharisees, or to accuse the proclamation of divine judgment of being unpalatable. John characterizes the position of those who neglect the gospel by stating that they believe that preaching the gospel, that is, according to their judgment, the speaking of nothing but the sufferings and merits of Christ answers all the ends of the law. What John is saying they believe is that a preacher ought to have nothing but the good news and ought to never speak of anything but Christ. John dismisses this position in the clearest of terms by writing, It does not answer the very first end of the law, namely the convincing men of sin. It is absurd, therefore, to offer a physician to them that are whole or that at least imagine themselves to be. You are first to convince them that they are sick, otherwise they will not thank you for your labor. In other words, there's no point to preaching the salvation of Christ until people are convinced that there is something to be saved from. So long as people remain asleep to their sinful state, they remain unable to experience repentance and salvation. To put it in the language of our metaphor, the crew of a ship cannot avoid the sandbars, reefs, and outcroppings that they do not know about. Therefore, the preaching of the law is as essential a factor in a safe faith journey as a reliable map is for the crew of a ship. The next obstacle that needs to be avoided is falling into belief that our faith eliminates the need for holiness. Or to put it a bit differently, teaching that because we are saved by grace, the demands of the law have been eliminated. John writes of this belief, The first plea of those who teach this expressly is that we are now under the covenant of grace, not works, and therefore we are no longer under the necessity of performing the works of the law. The danger posed by this teaching is that by understanding that we're not dependent on the work of our own hands for our salvation, we then start to believe 
that our salvation requires no work on our part at all. John responds to this teaching by writing, We are, doubtless, justified by faith. This is the cornerstone of the whole Christian building. We are justified without the works of the law as any previous condition of justification. But they are an immediate fruit of the faith whereby we are justified. So that if good works do not follow our faith, even all inward and outward holiness, it is plain our faith is nothing worth. We are yet in our sins. What John is saying is that if we truly have faith, then good works are the natural product of that faith. We do not do what is good and right in order to secure our salvation. We do what is good and right in response to our salvation. If I know where the dangers lie on my journey, and yet I do nothing to avoid them, will I not still be steering my ship toward its doom? The next danger is similar to the second, the living of our faith as if the law does not matter. So even if we pay lip service to the law, but do not produce good works, then the result is the same. Or worse yet, if we steer into the rocks in order to prove the saving power of God's grace, even in the days of Paul, this obstacle was the ruin of many believers. Paul sarcastically asks his audience in Romans, should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? This hubris has been the cause of destruction for many believers as surely as it was the downfall of the crew of the Titanic. Shall we proclaim as that unknown crew member did, God himself could not sink this ship, only to realize our mistake in that final most dreadful hour? So what then is the legitimate use of the law? How does the law become to us a guarantee of safe passage rather than another obstacle on our way? This is the question that John takes up in his second discourse. First, he argues that the law must be diligently proclaimed, for it remains a mystery to most people. We see how this contrasts with that first danger of not preaching the law at all. John instructs us that the law has not only been a mystery to most of humanity throughout most of history, but that it remains a mystery even to most of those who call themselves Christians in our own day and age. He argues this to be true because the vast majority of humanity gets lost in arguing over the literal outward appearance of the law while remaining ignorant of the inward spiritual meaning of the law. Even if we have the map to show us the path of safe passage, it's only useful to us if we know how to read it. If the map is written in another language, then we need a translator to show us the way. If it's written in symbols that we don't understand, then we need a guide who can read the symbols. The markings on the page do not deliver us from salvation if we don't know their meaning. In fact, John goes further to argue that the true gospel is offensive to those almost Christians who have perfected the outward show of faith but have not yet learned the inward meaning of the heart. He writes, Hence it is that to this day, the men who have the form but not the power of religion, and who are generally wise in their own eyes and righteous in their own conceits, 
hearing these things are offended, are deeply offended when we speak of the religion of the heart, and particularly when we show that without this, were we to give all our goods to feed the poor, it would profit us nothing. But offended they must be, for we cannot but speak the truth as it is in Jesus. It is our part, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, to deliver our own soul. Herein lies another danger, although John does not name it as such. We cannot be too proud to admit that sometimes we don't know how to read the map. Sometimes there will be a symbol or a word that evades our understanding. But if we are to continue on our journey, we must move past the emotional response of taking offense to our own lack of understanding in order that we might all make safe passage by working together. So what is that inward spiritual meaning that remains a mystery to most people? What is the end or the goal of the law? John writes that faith itself, even Christian faith, the faith of God's elect, the faith of the operation of God, still is only the handmaid of love. As glorious and honorable as faith is, it is not the end of the commandment. God hath given this honor to love alone. Love is the end of all the commandments of God. Love is the end, the sole end of every dispensation of God, from the beginning of the world to the consummation of all things. And it will endure when heaven and earth flee away, for love alone never faileth. Faith will totally fail. It will be swallowed up in sight in the everlasting vision of God. But even then, love, its nature and its office still the same, lasting its lamp and cons unconsumed its flame, in deathless triumph shall forever live, and endless good diffuse and endless praise receive. Faith may be the ship upon which we are making our journey toward God, but love is that precious cargo that we are carrying. And by realizing this inward spiritual meaning of the law, we are able to live into those hallmarks of true religion, gratitude toward God, and benevolence to our neighbors. John puts it thus in this sermon, For there is no motive which so powerfully inclines us to love God as the sense of the love of God in Christ. Nothing enables us like a piercing conviction of this to give our hearts to him who was given for us. And from this principle of grateful love to God arises love to our brother also. Neither can we avoid loving our neighbor if we truly believe the love wherewith God hath loved us. Now this love to man, grounded on faith and love to God, worketh no ill to our neighbor. Consequently, it is, as the apostle observes, the fulfilling of the whole negative law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Neither is love content with barely working no evil to our neighbor. It continually incites us to do good. 
as we have time and opportunity to do good in every possible kind and in every possible degree to all men. And should we be surprised to find that the legitimate use of the law is to love God and love our neighbor? After all, is this not the great commandment that our Lord gave us? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love God and love your neighbor. This is the way to avoid shipwreck in the faith. We do not use the law to batter other people down. We use it to lift them up. We do not use the law to find out the bare minimum that God asks of us. We use it as an invitation into the life of God. The journey of faith is at times perilous. The instructions are simple, even if they aren't always easy. Love God, love your neighbor. The siren call of the world will tempt us to dash our love upon the rocks, to trade in the narrow way of salvation for the depths of sin. But you have the tools to make the journey safely, and we will make the passage together. Amen. Would you please pray with me? God, you stand as the lighthouse in the distance, directing us away from danger. You stand beside us as the navigator, holding us to the path of safety. Let us heed your light and your counsel. Let us continue deeper in the journey of faith as stewards of your love. Help us to deliver your love to a world that needs it. Amen.